Well, congregation, this afternoon we'll remain standing for the reading of God's word. And today our scripture passage comes from Mark chapter 10 and verses 17 through 22. Hear now the word of God. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Congregation, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come here today, we come here in desperate need of the instruction of your word. Oh, Father, we desire to serve you with our lives. We desire to be effective ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, so often we let Opportunities pass us by, and when we do find ourselves engaged in conversations, we recognize that we don't know the way forward. So, Father, give us wisdom from Jesus' example in this text. Show us how our Lord Jesus Christ engaged with those who came to him, asking him about heavenly, spiritual, and eternal matters. Give us the wisdom of Christ and the kindness of Christ, so that we might glorify you above all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, congregation, we come to this passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. And generally, this is what we refer to as the story of the rich, young ruler. Now, why do we call him the rich, young ruler? As I just read through the passage, you didn't seem to see all of those details. But all of them are true. And we know that this man was young because in Matthew chapter 19, verse 20, Matthew says he was young. We know that this man was rich because in verse 22 of our text, Mark says that he had great possessions. And we know that he was actually a ruler because in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, Luke says that he was a ruler. And so oftentimes when we come to this passage, you know, we look at it and we say, here we go. This is the story of the rich young ruler. But what I want to say today is that this is a story about our Lord Jesus Christ. 
In this passage, we have an opportunity to see our Lord in action as he deals with the rich young ruler. This passage shows us how Jesus deals with those who are seeking him or appear to be seeking him. And it gives us a pattern that we can follow and conform to as we seek to do the same thing. And that is proclaim the truth of the gospel and bring men into a state of eternal life. Now, when I was um, a young Christian and I was uh, flipping through the channels looking for anything I could gain encouragement from, I came across a TV show and it was called The Way of the Master. Does, Does everyone know about that TV show? Yeah. Way of the Master was Ray Comfort. And also at that time that I was watching, he was partnered up with Kirk Cameron. And the wonderful thing about their ministry was that in all of their evangelistic efforts, all of the outreach efforts, uh, they tried to follow the principles of the Lord Jesus Christ, those principles that he exemplified in his own ministry. And I think that they did a wonderful job, and a lot of people came to Jesus as a result of their ministry. So the Lord blessed them in doing what they did. Now, as we study this passage, I want us to see how Jesus deals with the man in our text so we also can walk in the footsteps and in the way of the master. Now, when we come to this passage, the very first thing we see from the vantage point of an evangelist is the prospect of a new convert. That's exactly what we see. We see the prospect of a new convert. Uh, Here we have a young, rich ruler, yes, but I also want to say that this is a very courteous man, and this is a man with a deep interest in religion. Look at verse 17. You'll notice in verse 17 that this man came to Jesus, not walking or dragging his feet, but he came running. He was eager to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only ran to him, but when he got there, he knelt down before him. That's a sign of reverence and respect. And not only that, but then he addressed the Lord with the utmost respect, saying, good teacher, what must I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, when we see this prospect of a new convert, I think uh, this would make any one of us hopeful and excited. I mean, just look at this man's profile Uh, We would see this man and we would say, what an asset, what a potential asset to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And when we see his profile and we recognize that he would be an asset, the question is, how would you and I proceed with this conversation? Well, I would say that if we had any training in the modern methods of evangelism, we might try to walk this man down what some people call the Roman road. And probably we would do that in a very simplistic fashion. This is what we see in a lot of evangelism courses and training. And we would say to the man, now, God says that we are all sinners. Can you at least acknowledge that you've sinned at some point in your life? And of course, the answer would be yes. And then we would move on. We'd say the Bible says that Jesus died for sinners. Do you at least believe that Christ died for your sins? And we would expect the answer to be yes. And then we would say that the Bible says that we have to confess Jesus as Lord. Are you willing 
to make Jesus Christ your personal Lord and Savior. And if that person were to say yes, 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 then we would proceed to say, okay, then repeat this prayer after me. Now, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to sit here and try to pretend that no one has ever been led to the Lord Jesus Christ by that method. I can guarantee you a lot of people were led to the Lord by that very method. But I do want to point out that this is not the direction that Jesus goes in. This is not the method that our Lord uses in this text. And so for us, as we continue to grow in the convictions and in knowledge of the Christian faith, I would encourage you to look carefully at how Jesus proceeds in this interaction. Instead of leading this man down a very simplistic form of questioning, Jesus gives this man a twofold response. First, he gives him a correction, a correction, almost like a confrontation. He gives him a challenge, and then he gives this man a command. He directs him to the law and tells him to keep God's commandments. It's very odd, but I want us to walk through it to see why Jesus would take this approach. Notice that the first part of our Lord's response is aimed not at the man's question as it was posed, but it's aimed at this man's address. The man calls him good teacher, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good, and that is God. So what's going on here? Why does Jesus confront the man Why does he put up a roadblock to the discussion? Why does he stop the man in his tracks? Well, some commentators think that all Jesus is doing here is giving the man a little hint about his deity, right? So the reasoning goes, well, no one is really good but God. And of course, you acknowledge that I'm a good teacher. And later on, I'll refer to myself as the good shepherd. So I'm also good, which means that I am also God. Now, all of that is true. The reasoning is sound. We know that the scriptures teach the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, but I don't think that that's exactly what's going on here. I think a better explanation is that Jesus is simply addressing the man's presuppositions. As far as this man knows, Jesus is just a popular rabbi with a growing reputation for knowledge and for wisdom. There are rumors going around that this man can perform miracles, so God must be with him. But the reason that this man calls Jesus good is not because of his skill. It's not because of his power. It's because in his own worldview, this man believes that people are essentially and basically good. And so right away, we see that Jesus confronts the man according to that presupposition. And at the same time, he teaches us that this is what we should do when we're talking to other people. It's not just the words that people use, but it's the presuppositions that are attached to their words that we have to investigate so that we don't speak past them. Jesus is not going to speak past this man. He's going to see what the man's saying. And he's going to analyze what the man's thinking so he can know that this man's heart is truly in the right place or not. Now, let's keep in mind 
that this man is asking a very important question. He's asking, what can I do so that I can inherit eternal life? This is one of the most important questions that anyone in this world can ever ask. But if he's thinking in the back of his mind that he can somehow earn favor with God, then the question itself must be arrested. The question itself must be suspended. And the conversation must proceed in that light. The very first thing that this man needs to know is that no man, apart from Jesus Christ himself, we acknowledge, but no man is good enough to earn God's favor. You know, so often we talk to people who simply don't understand the gospel, and what do we find? In most cases, we find that they're under the same impression that this man is under. They just think that man is basically good. And so in their minds, the way that we get to heaven is to simply live out the goodness that's in us in a way that pleases God. But congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is simply not true. This is diametrically opposed to what the word of God teaches about man. Rather, what the Bible says is that ever since the fall of man, all of us have been born into this world in a state of sin and corruption. Let me just go over a few basic preliminary facts, a few basic truths so that we can have this be driven deep down into our hearts. First of all, the Bible teaches that all of us, every single one of us, were born in a state of sin. In Job chapter 14, verse 4, Job asks a question. He says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And then he says, not one. And when he says not one, he means not one. The only exception, again, is our Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 51, 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Even the Apostle Paul says that he was born in sin. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, We were all by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But it's not just that we're all born in sin. The Bible also teaches that even after our conversion, after we've been born again, we all continue to sin because of the reality of indwelling sin in our lives and in our hearts. Even Isaiah the prophet says that he was no different from the rest of God's people. Isaiah 64, 6 says, but we, that that includes him, but we are all like an unclean thing. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And even after the Apostle Paul was converted on the Damascus Road, what a powerful experience. He continued to confess the sin that remained in his nature. In Romans chapter 7, he says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. This is why the great reformer Martin Luther coined that beautiful phrase that in this life, a Christian is always simultaneously righteous and sinful. It's because the righteousness that we have 
and upon which we can stand before a just and a holy God is not a righteousness that we can produce ourselves. This is a righteousness that is credited to us by virtue of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our righteousness is Jesus Christ alone. It's a righteousness that's outside of us. And even in the process of our sanctification, as the Holy Spirit works a practical righteousness in our hearts and in our lives, that process is never finished. It's never perfected in this life. We will always, as Luther says, be simultaneously righteous and wicked in this life. So what Jesus is doing here is very wise. Jesus is not taking anything for granted. He's not allowing this man to take anything for granted, but instead he wants to draw the sharpest contrast between the so-called goodness of man and the true goodness that belongs to God alone. And that's important because that's exactly what God-centered evangelism is. Jesus is not teaching us how to do man-centered evangelism. He's not asking about the man's needs or his experiences or his opinions or his feelings or his thoughts. He is proclaiming the goodness of Almighty God as an objective reality with which this man must reckon. This man has to see the goodness of God so that in contrast to that, he can see his own sin. Until man sees his own sin, he will never see his need for Jesus Christ. So true God-centered evangelism always includes an exposition of the attributes of God. Think about what Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 3. He says, and this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The Apostle John says that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And Job says, but what is man, that he could be pure, and he who was born of a woman, that he could be righteous? If God puts no trust in his saints, and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man, who is abominable and filthy, and who drinks iniquity like water? Think about that picture. You know, you're thirsty and you grab a glass and you fill it up with some fresh, cool, clear, clean water and you drink it and it satisfies your thirst. But this picture says that we thirst for unrighteousness to the extent that we drink iniquity as if it were water. You know, the world is all about this idea of knowing ourselves. The world says, know yourself, love yourself, esteem yourself. But the truth is that there's no way that we can even begin to know ourselves and what we really are until we see ourselves in contrast to God. We have to see the contrast. And this was Job's own experience in the 42nd chapter of the book of Job. Remember, after that whole book, God finally reveals himself in his righteousness, his holiness, his sovereignty. And Job says in verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And therefore, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. 
You see, the outcome of knowing the contrast, seeing the contrast, is that we don't esteem ourselves, but we forsake ourselves. We abhor ourselves. We repent of our sins, and we do so in dust and ashes. Now, going back to our text, we can see that Jesus knows that this man has never seen God in the way that Job is describing in that text. If this man had ever seen God like that, he would not have this presupposition in his mind about the goodness of man and therefore the goodness of himself. And so the very first thing that Jesus does is he tells this man that the only one who is truly and essentially and consistently good is God alone. Now this grabs the man's attention, but now Jesus wants to drive the point home. He arrests him, he suspends his address, he challenges it, but now Jesus issues another challenge. What does he do? Well, he sends this man back to the law of God. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. And honor your father and your mother. Now here we can see the wisdom of Jesus' method. After confronting the man with the goodness of God, he sends him right back to the law so that he can learn that he himself is not good. So Jesus is teaching us how to use the law. He's showing us how to use the law in our conversations with other people. To put it simply, we are to use the law to break the heart and prepare it for the gospel. As long as the heart is hard and proud and lifted up, then it's not ready for the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can a man ever see the value and the cure that we are offering him unless and until he first of all is convinced that he has the disease? Right now, this man sees himself as good, so Jesus sends him to the law. The Apostle James tells us that the law serves like a mirror because it shows us what we really are. We look into the mirror of God's law and how it commands us to do various things, but then it shows us that we have never actually done those things with anything close to perfection. And this is why Paul says that it's by the law that we gain the knowledge of our sins. But notice, even though Jesus sends this man back to the law, the man in this text, on this occasion, is not convicted of his sin. In verse 20, he says to Jesus, Teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. But I want you to see very clearly here that there's a setup going on. Jesus is actually setting this man up. Notice that Jesus only mentions five of the commandments. Do not commit adultery, don't murder, don't bear false witness, and the positive command, honor your father and your mother. But there's one commandment that he doesn't mention. Can anyone remember what commandment Jesus does not mention right here in this text? That's right. It's the last one. The 10th commandment. Do not covet. And here I think Jesus is keeping that commandment back. He's holding it back like an ace card up his sleeve. 
Jesus knows that all the rest of the commandments can be easily externalized in the mind of an Orthodox Jew who was living in those days. So this man, taking his cue from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of the oral rabbinic traditions, is looking at these five commands and thinking to himself, I passed the test. Because he's externalizing the commandments. So he says, I've never killed anyone. I've never slept with another man's wife. I've never stolen another man's goods. I've never accused another person falsely. I love my mother and my father, and I honor them to the best of my ability. For the Jews, all these commands only apply to what we do with our hands, what we do outwardly and externally. And that's one of the reasons why the Sermon on the Mount was so revolutionary. It's because Jesus unpacked the true intention of God's law. The law of God doesn't just extend to the outward actions of his people. It actually extends even to the inward reflections, thoughts, desires, and motives of our hearts. This is what we call the spirituality of the law. And the Apostle Paul had an amazing revelation about this in his conversion experience. He tells us about it. At one point, and all through his life perhaps, he understood the law externally until the power of the 10th commandment came breaking into his heart and mind. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he shares that experience. He says, I would have never known sin except for the law. What law is he talking about? For I would have not known what covetousness was, except that the law had said, you shall not covet. He wouldn't have known what it was. Why? It's because the heart is deceitful. The heart is deceitful. And we deceive ourselves about the true condition of our spiritual state before God. So Jesus knows exactly what the man is going to do. Jesus knows exactly how this man is going to think. And so he withholds that 10th commandment like an ace card up his sleeve. And the man, of course, does exactly what Jesus expects. Teacher, I have kept all these commandments from my youth up. I've always been a very righteous person. Now, let's look at Jesus' method. Our Lord knows exactly what he's doing. First, he's confronting the man's presuppositions. He's pointing the man's eyes back to God and away from himself as the standard of goodness. And this means for the man, you are not good. But then he reinforces that reality by lifting up the mirror of God's holy law. And he says to the man, you know the commandments, you've memorized all of them. Go and keep them. Go and fulfill them. Go and be obedient to every one of them. And then you can earn your way to heaven. Jesus knows this man is self-deceived. Jesus knows that the man is blinded to his spiritual condition. He knows that the man has never been confronted about the thoughts and the motives and the desires of his heart. And so he continues and he says in verse 21, one thing you lack, go your way, 
Sell whatever you have and give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, take up the cross, and follow me. In other words, do you really think that you're a good man? Do you really believe you have always kept the commands of God? What about the tenth? What about the tenth? You shall not covet. You see, this one commandment gets straight to the heart. You cannot externalize this. This is a method that Jesus wants us to use. We have to get at the hearts of the people we're speaking to. We can't allow them to distract us with externalities. We have to speak to the heart, and that's what God's law actually does. So we should unleash the power of God's law to break the heart and to prepare it for the gospel. Now, it's not just that this man um, covets, that he has lust in his heart, but this man has a love affair with his own money. That's actually what comes out here. It shows that this man does not truly love God, but instead he loves his money more than God. Now, why do I say that? Why is that the lesson that's coming out here? Well, remember that Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And then he says, no one can serve both God and mammon or material possessions, material goods in this world. And let me just make a quick clarification for all of us so we're, we're absolutely clear. The issue here is not the money itself. So often we hear people misquoting scripture and they tell us that money is the root of all evil. That is absolutely false. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. This man doesn't just have money. It's okay to have money, but this man loves his money. And for that reason, his money has become his God. And that's why Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, that covetousness amounts to idolatry. His money is an idol. Now, I wish that this passage, I wish that this encounter, this interaction ended on a more positive note. But as we've already read through the text, we can see that it does not. There's a very sad ending for this particular man. In verse 22, it says, But he was sad at the word of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he went away sorrowful. And the explanation? For he had great possessions. As we see the way this story ends, let us not be distracted with that, because in the in the following passage, Jesus is going to address the problem of riches and the power of God to save. But in, in this message, I want us to focus on a few final thoughts about the methodology of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to see how we can put some of those things into practice in our own lives. So first of all, I want you to notice that Jesus loved him. Right before he told this man, one thing you lack, the text says that he looked upon this man and he loved him. And then he said, one thing you lack. So the very fact that Jesus loved this man should grab our attention. 
It should correct the disposition of our own hearts, our own attitudes, as we are engaging with the people of this world. Jesus was in no way, in this text, on this occasion, rude to this man. So what's the principle for us? We don't have to add offense to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is already an offense to pride. The gospel is already an offense, a stumbling block to those who refuse to repent. We don't have to add any offense by a bad attitude, by a harsh and judgmental treatment of the person we're talking to. Think about what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. He says, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in error, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So, we all know that preaching the gospel is a rescue operation. There should be a sense of importance and urgency and sobriety, very serious about the truths of God. But we should also have compassion and love. We should speak the truth in love, recognizing that if it were not for the grace of God, this person standing right before you would be you. And that's what Jesus teaches us, because out of everything that was spoken, that's the thing that should grab our attention. He loved him through it all. A final thing that I think we should learn here is that Jesus stood firm. He loved him, but he didn't compromise. He stood firm, and he simply told this man the truth. So we can't take the hard parts out of the Christian faith. We can't soften our doctrine of sin in order to sneak people into the back door without acknowledging their desperate need for Jesus Christ. We have to preach the whole counsel of God. We have to preach the law and the gospel. And guess what? We have to preach the law again. Think about Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So we use the law, it breaks the heart. We plant the seed of the gospel and people come to Jesus. And then we instruct them in the things that he has commanded us to do. So from the law to the gospel and right back to the law for the whole of our Christian lives. The law didn't save us, but the law shows us what it means to love. The law shows us what it means to honor God with our lives. Salvation is about trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's about knowing that there's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. One preacher put it this way. He said in the Christian message, there's bad news and there's good news. The bad news is that you cannot save yourself. The good news is you don't have to. That's salvation. But the Christian life is about walking in that salvation. And that includes doing all the things that God commands. 
And so Jesus told this man that when he came to follow him, that would include the denial of himself, and it would also include the taking up of his cross. Jesus didn't sugarcoat the presentation of the Christian life. These are practical things that we can take away. These are practical ways that we can evangelize the world around us. We're not worried about the results. The results remain with God. We're worried about being faithful. And so congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, let us be instructed by Jesus's example on how to engage in these discussions. That way we don't misrepresent the truth of God's word to the people we're talking to. But instead we can follow in the footsteps and in the way of the master. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we love you and thank you for all that you are. You are good. You are holy and righteous. You are loving and compassionate. And we thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus Christ. We know that in Christ, your kindness and your love is manifested to us. So we thank you for sending him. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins through his death and resurrection. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who continues to conform us into his image. But as we live this Christian life, our Heavenly Father, we desire to serve you faithfully as your people. We desire to be salt and light. We want to be used in the advancement of the kingdom of our Lord in this world. So give us wisdom, we pray. Help us to see that methodology of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let us put these principles into practice in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.